One of the things that's always impressed me about Jesus Christ, in John chapter 1, the scripture says that Jesus was full of grace and truth. It's always impressed me to think about that. What does that mean? There were times that Jesus was very truthful and even harsh with religious leaders who were hypocrites. And then he was very gracious with the woman caught in adultery or the woman he met at the well. He was full of grace. He was full of truth. He was balanced. He knew what, what to bring to each day and to each situation. That's caused me to reflect, how, how, how do I do when it comes to grace and truth? And um, one of the things in our culture today, you know, we're, I see the evangelical community, which is us, which is, includes me, is that we have responded to a, you know, we're so tired of legalism and we're so tired of a rule-oriented Christianity we need grace because Jesus was loving, and that's absolutely true. He was full of grace and truth. And what I want to say today is let's not forget the truth. Yes, we need grace, and we've been given grace, and we need to be gracious people and loving people. Let's not forget truth. According to a 2016 research study by the George Barna Group, Listen to this, 62% of people living in our communities surrounding our churches would like to read the Bible more, 62%. This is 2016, this is George Barna. 87% of people in our churches want help with understanding the Bible better. At the same time, Bible reading has decreased by 20%. At this rate, by 2040, in 22 years, two-thirds of the American people will have no connection with the Bible. Now, I don't know about you, but you, how would you answer this quietly? Are you reading the Bible more? Are you reading the Bible less? Have you become maybe stuck the real question is, how will we get to know Jesus, the one who loves us and gave himself for us? How will we get to know Jesus on a daily basis who speaks to us through his word? How will we know his instructions as he leads us? You know, sometimes there are people that are way truth-oriented, and sometimes there are people way prayer-oriented, and that's, you know, to be prayer-oriented is good. But if it's not in touch with the Word of God, sometimes we have a tendency to follow our feelings and not truth. And sometimes feelings lead against the truth. How will we know how to follow Jesus? How will we know how to follow the one who said, if you love me, keep my commandments. How will we know? Today we see Jesus in the face of opposition. To help set this context, I'd like us to go back. We're going to go back to Luke chapter 4, verses 18 and 19, and be 
reminded of this. And as I have been studying through Luke, it just amazes me how central this passage is, is to the story, the unfolding story of Jesus in the Gospel of Luke. And if you remember, Jesus was in Nazareth in his hometown and he, where he went to synagogue on a regular basis when he was there. That's all he went to it growing up. And so he was invited to read the scripture. And he goes back and he reads Isaiah 61, verses 1 and 2, at least part of verse 2. And um, it may have been that it was selected for him, or maybe he chose. We don't know. But here it is. He's reading this out loud. This is from Isaiah 61. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me. By the way, Christ means anointed one. Jesus is the anointed one, the promised one, the Messiah. And he's reading this because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of the sight of the blind to set the oppressed free. Next slide. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, the year of the Lord's grace. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. He began by saying to them, Today, the scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. And let that one sink in. He has just read, everybody understood. He's reading the Old Testament. This is important. Yeah, listen to everybody, listen to everybody. What? What did you say? Today, this is fulfilled. This is it. I have been anointed to proclaim good news to the poor and to proclaim release to the captives, um, to uh, heal the sick, to bring sight to the blind, to to, uh, release those held captive to demonic forces. This is what Jesus has been doing. We've seen it in the Gospel of Luke weekly where he's healed people, he's cast out demons, he's raised people from the dead. These are all miracles, they're all signs, and they authenticate who he is. He's the one. He's the promised one. Remember, signs authenticate the messenger and the message. And he's saying to the nation of Israel, wake up, Messiah, the kingdom of God is here, the king is present. Kingdom of God is about the influence of God. So, with that being said, let's look at our passage. Luke chapter 11. We're going to start with uh, verses 14. And I hope you'll turn in your Bible or your phone. We'll pick it up at verse 14. Jesus was driving out a demon that was mute. When the demon left, the man who had been mute spoke, and the crowd was amazed. But... Some of them said, by Beelzebub, the prince of demons, he is driving out demons. Others tested him by asking him for a sign from heaven. Jesus knew their thoughts and said to them, any kingdom divided against itself will be ruined, and a house divided against itself will fall. If Satan is divided against himself, how can this kingdom stand? I say this because you claim that I drive out demons by Beelzebub. Now I drive out demons by Beelzebub. By whom do your followers drive them out? So then, they will be your judges. But if I drive out demons by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come to you. 
So Jesus faces opposition. And in verses 14 through 28, we see this, the source of Jesus' power is questioned. He's challenged. And, and verse 14 is a display of that power. He drove out a demon. Uh, it says that was mute. It wasn't the demon was mute, by the way. The man was mute as an effect of the demon's uh, control. When the demon left the man who had been mute, spoke, so he was able to speak after Jesus delivered the demon, the crowd was amazed because that's how crowds were supposed to respond to miracles of God. They were attention getters. They were to awe people. God is at work. God is moving. And so we got excited people. But, verse 15, the challenge, but some of them said, by Beelzebul. Now, I've just read from the this is the New International Standard before 2011, and I have to read from the 2000, the NIV since then, so there's a slight changing of wording at times. So when um, some of them said, but by Beelzebul or Beelzebub, either way, the prince of de- demons, he is driving out demons. Matthew tells us it was the Jewish leaders who, who brought this question. Uh, who made this claim. They were saying, Jesus is satanic. Jesus is driving out demons because he's using supernatural power from Satan. And Beelzebul is a reference to Satan. They won't give God the credit. Um, Beelzebul is a name uh, used for Satan. Jesus uses it here uh, as the prince of demons. It comes from the root Baal uh, in the Old Testament from the pagan god Baal. And um, it means Lord of the dwellings or even Lord of high places. But there was the Jewish teachers made a pun out of this. They kind of altered the word slightly and they made it Lord of the flies, which is a metaphor for Lord of dung because dung draws flies. So, you know, it's a hard translation here, but this is a low, low picture. And they're saying Jesus gets his power from the Lord of Dung. Verses 16 through 18 says, Others, the house divided, others tested him by asking for a sign from heaven. They were not seeking truth, they were trying to prove that Jesus was an imposter. They asked for a sign. They wanted some kind of supernatural thing to Jesus to show off he was the real deal. This is what Jesus had been doing for two years. It was in public. There's no secrets about this. Jesus knew, verse 17, their thoughts and said to them, any kingdom divided against itself will be ruined and a house divided against itself will fall. Now, it was Abraham Lincoln who borrowed this verse in 1858 when he said that a house divided against itself will fall, meaning the United States is not going to last because we have slave states and free states. It's divided, and it's not going to last. And, of course, he's going to recommend a union. Here, Jesus is showing that to claim that he is casting out demons by the power of Satan is totally illogical. 
You can't destroy your own troops. You can't take away the power of your forces and be victorious. It's totally ludicrous that, Jesus, that Satan would cast out his own army. Verse 18, Satan is divided against himself. How can his kingdom stand? It can't. I say this because you claim that I drive out demons by Beelzebub. Verses 19 through 20, the implication. Now, he says, Jesus says, if I drive out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your followers drive them out? Because there were Jewish exorcisms before Jesus. There were men of God who uh, helped deliver people from evil and the power of evil spirits. And he's saying, if they have had success, how is it that they had success? Were they satanic? Did were they driving out demons by the power of Beelzebul? No. Their success came by the power of God. It only makes sense. My power comes from the same God. Um, and then Jesus says, so then they will be your judges, your, your own people who have cast out demons by the power of God in past times. They will be your judges. They will demonstrate who the power came from. He's talking about at the end of the age for judgment. Verse 20, but if I drive out demons by the finger of God, uh, finger metaphor for the work of God, for what God does, if I drive out demons with the power of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. There it is. This is his point. The kingdom of God is present. The king is present. The promised one, the Messiah, the Christ is here. What would be the proper response? Whoa. Step back. Listen. Receive. Pay attention. Follow. And Jesus says, and he goes on, and he gives uh, the lesson of the strong man, verses 21 through 23. He continues his teaching point. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own house, his possessions are safe. So he's using this as an illustration here. But when someone stronger attacks and overpowers him, he takes away the armor in which the man trusted and divided up his plunder. But there's more here. The strong man is a reference to Satan. And if someone stronger comes along, Jesus... And he overthrows the strong man as Jesus has overthrown Satan and will continue to overthrow Satan. Every time Jesus casts out a demon, he's in the process of overthrowing Satan. When someone stronger attacks and overpowers him, he takes away the armor. He, he takes away that strength in which the man trusted and, and he divides it up. Verse 23 he clearly articulates his position. Whoever is not with me is against me. And whoever does not gather with me scatters. And he's saying, guess what? There's no neutral ground. No fence sitting. If you're on the fence, you are against him. You are not with him. Whoever is not with me is against me. Um, 
Sometimes, you know, I think God is very gracious with us as people when we're making decisions and um, we're not sure and we need time and we need information and we need to process. And I think Jesus is very patient and very gracious. Um, but we, we can't end there sitting on a fence. We can't end in neutral. We have to decide. And that's what Jesus is saying. There has to be a decision. What will you do with Jesus? Verses 24 through 26, there's a warning against being misled. And he says, when an and so this is going to be kind of a humorous story for his audience. You're probably not going to laugh, but it's a humorous story for his audience. When an impure spirit comes out of a person, it goes through arid places seeking a rest and does not find it. Then he said, I will return to the house I left. When, when it arrives, it finds a house swept clean and put in order. So Jesus has just cast out of a demon, out of a man. And it's like um, this demon has been cast out and it's left and now it's searching for a place to come back to. And uh, when that happens, where does it go? So it comes back. The demon comes back. What does the demon find? When it arrives, it finds the house swept clean the man's life, and put in order. Then it goes and takes seven other spirits more wicked than itself and then go in and live there. And the final condition of that person is worse than at first. This is a warning. What is needed is a power greater than Satan. Jesus is saying, um, hypothetically speaking, if a demon is removed from a person and they are without they are no longer under the influence of that demon. If there is nothing to replace it, if the power of God is not present, then that is a uh, dangerous situation, open to further influence in the future, unless God works in this person, unless they take on a new dimension, a new life, and they experience a new birth, and the presence of the Holy Spirit. Um, in other passages in uh, the Gospels, and especially in the Gospel of John, Jesus talks about uh, the enemy and how Jesus is compared with his enemy, the devil. John 8.44 says this, He's talking to religious leaders here. This is one of those really truthful statements, you know, when he speaks the truth, and, and sure, it's in love, but these guys are really uh, off the track. They're hypocrites. They're religious leaders. They're supposed to be guiding the people of God, and they're not. He said, you, to the religious leaders, belong to your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desires. You're living in the same values. You're moving toward uh, the enemy's plans. He was a murderer from the beginning. In the book of Genesis, Satan is a murderer. Um, not holding to the truth. He likes to deceive. He likes to distort. For there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language. For he is a liar and a father of liars. This is Jesus' son, Satan. Uh, John 10, 11. Next slide. The thief, and here he's making a comparison. Ultimately, the thief would be Satan, the power behind the thief. 
comes only to steal and kill and destroy. He said, I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. Jesus is the author of life. He is the giver of spiritual life. He's a giver of new birth. Jesus is not about, Jesus is about life, creating life, eternal life. And it says in John 10, 10, he's come that they may have life, life now, eternal life, but life now to its full. He wants us to have more than just going through the motions and putting up with this life. He wants us to experience a full life with his strength. Not that problems get taken away, but we have resources to deal with tough things in life. The next slide. Next slide. John 14, 6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. The truth, the life. He's the way. The enemy is not the way. The lifestyle of the enemy is not the way. It's, it's about Jesus being the way. He's our access. No one comes to the Father, to a relationship with God. No one comes to heaven apart from putting their faith in Jesus Christ, who died on the cross and paid the penalty for all sin, our sin. The penalty is paid, and Jesus wants us to begin a relationship by placing our faith in Jesus so that we can be born again. Verses 27 and 28, the blessing for obedience. As Jesus was saying these things, a woman in the crowd called out, Blessed is the mother who gave you birth and nursed you. It was a nice thing. You know, this is a nice lady. She has a good point. You know, Mary was a great person. Mary was a godly woman. And um, she was, in a sense, blessed, but she's not to be elevated beyond a godly woman. Jesus deflects her words, changes the subject. He replied, blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and obey it. Family is important, but it is not as important as obedience. Obedience is always the priority. Blessed means the God's favor on you for your obedience. He who hears the word and obeys it. He who has ears, let him hear. How do we hear the word of God? Well, gathering for time and teaching is one way. God so designed the church that his people come together on a regular basis to hear the word of God. That's important. Certainly not the only way. And we can be in groups where we get to talk about these things, ask questions, learn together, pray together about God's word in our lives. We have the privilege, like no other generation, to be able to have access to this in our homes. Whether it's hard copy or electronic copy, we have access to the Bible. We can read it in our homes on a daily basis. Um, how do you do it? Would you say you're 
reading and understanding the Bible more or reading, not reading, not understanding? What would you like? So if you're stuck, I just want to encourage you. Just, I'm not going to beat your, club you over the head about the Bible. Just step back into it. Uh, if you're, the best place to start reading is in the book of John. That's my opinion. And just reading, don't worry about the things you don't understand. Just start thinking about what you do understand. Just ask God to help you. Just read a, a bit each day. Try a chapter a day. Can you see what's happening in the story? It's not that hard. Um, just keep at it. Keep learning. Keep asking God. Verses 29 through 32. This is our last part of the passage. The sign of Jesus' power affirmed. And it's the sign of Jonah, verses 29 through 30. As the crowds increased, Jesus said, remember they asked for a sign? Show us the sign. As the crowds increased, Jesus said, this is a wicked generation. He's speaking the truth here. It, is, it asks for a sign, but none will be given it except the sign of Jonah. Um, and, you know, Jesus has been doing signs on a regular basis. All they have to do is hang out, uh, talk to people. There's been all kinds of miracles to authenticate who he is and why he came. But no sign will be given except the sign of Jonah. Verse 30, for as Jonah was assigned to the Ninevites, so also the Son of Man will be to this generation. So try reading the book of Jonah. It's only four chapters, and the chapters are very short. Um, Jonah was assigned by God to go to Nineveh, and he was to go. This, Nineveh was a Gentile city, not a Jewish city. He was to go there, and he was to call them to repentance, to turn back to God. And he didn't want to go. You ever been that way? Not wanting to do what you knew you should do? He didn't want to go. And the way God worked it out, uh, God appointed a great fish, a whale, I don't know what it was, and it swallowed Jonah. This was a sign, by the way. It's, it was miraculous. It wasn't like the ordinary affairs that I have to prove it naturally, although there are all some cases in history. Um, but he was swallowed, and he was in this belly of the fish for three days and three nights. And then God appointed him to uh, go to a new location close to Nineveh. That's how he got there, because he was going in the wrong direction. And uh, he was coughed up on the shore, and so um, Jonah decided, maybe I should go to Nineveh. And he did, and he called the city to repentance, and there was a huge city revival, people humbling themselves before the true and living God, and repenting, turning back to God, and wanting to uh, pay attention and pay heed to the true and living God. So this is the sign. Um, Jonah, three days and three nights. And then this huge uh, proclamation of God's word and a turning around. Now, Jesus is speaking to the first century religious leaders. Matthew 12, 40, which is the same situation, adds this information. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. He's referring to his death, burial, and resurrection. By the way, that's the gospel, I think. 
So he's not going to give them the sign immediately, but he's going to give them a sign. And they're going to have to deal with this in the future because he said this. And God is going to remind it. I bet God used it to soften the hearts of some of that audience because a lot of religious leaders did turn to Jesus later. Um, The point, verses 31 through 32, the queen of the south will rise at the judgment with the people of this generation and condemn them. So Jesus has said this kind of thing a few times where he refers to judgment, future time. Uh, The queen of the south, that's the queen of Sheba. She came to visit Solomon because she had heard about him, that he was so wealthy and so wise, and she was amazed. And so she wanted to see it firsthand, and so she went to visit Solomon. She was so impressed. She said, this is far greater than I ever expected. And Jesus is saying, she, who is not a Jewish person, is going to rise up at judgment and say, guys, you missed it. You missed the the boat. You made the wrong call. For she came from the ends of the earth to listen to Solomon's wisdom, and now something greater than Solomon here. Something is greater than a great king or the wealthiest person or the, um, something greater than the wisest man on earth, something greater than the most famous person, something greater than the smartest person on earth is here. Verse 32, it's our last verse. The men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment. There it is again. Those, the, the people who had repented in Nineveh, not a Jewish community. These are Gentiles, non-Jewish people. They will stand up at the judgment in the future with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah. People of Nineveh are going to rise up and say, what were you thinking, you idiots? The promised one of God stood before you and spoke to you and told you who he was and he demonstrated who he was. And you attritely accused him of being satanic. Now something greater than Jonah is here. It is Jesus. Do you know who Jesus Christ is. Are you getting to know him? How well do you know him? We're going to share in communion this morning, and I'd just like us to be reminded about who Jesus is because we have a fuller picture from the scripture than um, just what was written in the Gospels. For example, uh, Hebrews 1, chapter 3 says this, the Son is the, the Son of God, Jesus Christ, is the radiance of God's glory and the exact repre- representation of his being. If you saw Jesus, you saw God, sustaining all things by his powerful word. That's always impressed me. You know, Jesus spoke the world into creation, uh, into existence. He spoke and it happened. Let it be so. According to Revelation 19, when Jesus comes again, he will speak the word of God and judgment will come. He just speaks. And it is by his word right now that everything hangs together. The universe is held together 
by his power. If he spoke the word, we could evaporate like that. He is holding this together for his purposes and his time, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins, that's why we worship him today at communion, because he paid the price for us. He took our place. We deserved the death, but he took it. He sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. When Jesus ascended back into heaven, he took the most important position in the kingdom of God at the right hand of his father, the most powerful position, the right hand. And if you and I could go there right now, we could see him sitting on his throne because that's exactly where he is. And then we have uh, Colossians chapter 1. For in him all things were created. Jesus is the creator God. If Genesis 1 verse 1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Jesus the Son created everything. He just didn't show up in the first century. He'd always been the Son of God. He just took on human flesh. God became a man in the first century. He created everything, heaven and earth, visible and invisible, the things we see and the things we can't see, which includes the spiritual world. Whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, those are all angels, good angels, evil angels. All things have been created through him and for him. All things are created for him, for his purpose, for his kingdom, for his intentions. What does that mean? You and I were created for him. We don't find our purpose apart from him. You can create your own. It'd be apart from him. And you won't find why you were created for what he wants to do in you and through you. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Next uh, slide. And he is the head of the body of the church, and he is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all the fullness dwell in him. Jesus has supremacy. All authority is given to him. All authority. The Father just says, okay, Jesus, you take care of it. And Colossians 2, next slide. For in Christ all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. And in Christ you have been brought to fullness. He is the head over every power and authority. Not only is um, Jesus God in the flesh, all the fullness of the deity lives in the bodily form, he has given us, our connection to Christ enables us to be everything that God wants us to be. We have a fullness, we have resources spiritually that he's given that we can use to be everything God wants us to be. He wants us to grow. He wants us to follow. He wants us to help advance his kingdom. He wants to use us to accomplish that. When we walk with Christ, we're moving with him. We are for him. And when we pull back, we're moving against him. Philippians chapter 2, verse 5 through 8. Last one. The Apostle Paul wrote to the Philippian church, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset of Christ Jesus. If we follow, he wants us to have this same mindset. He wants us 
to be humble. He wants us to be obedient. Who, referring to Christ, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. He took on human flesh and and related to us and communicated with us, understood us. Rather, he made himself nothing. He humbled himself. Next slide. By taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. That's why we worship him today. He was humble. He wants us to be humble. He was obedient even to death. Do you know he wants us to be obedient even to death? On June 17, 1998, 81-year-old Robert Kupferschmidt, and I'm not going to say that word again, (laughs) was flying in a small uh, plane with a good friend of his. His friend, at 52 years of age, slumped over at the controls and died on the spot. Robert had no flying experience, but he took over the controls. He figured out how to use the radio. He called for help. And there were two pilots on the ground that heard this distress call. So they began to give him instructions on what to do. First, how to steer the plane. How to climb, because they had been descending. And finally, they had to uh, guide him into how to descend. The scariest part was how do you land this thing? Witnesses say when the plane came down, it bounced several times and finally hit the tail and landed and um, careened off the runway uh, into uh, wet, tall grass. And Robert uh, walked out. He was okay. Robert listened and followed instructions as if his life depended on it. What if each of us would follow Jesus as if our lives depended on it? What would life be like? Jesus called us to remember his death. And that's what we're going to do as we close our service with a time of communion. Our communion is open to all who call themselves followers of Christ. Uh, You don't have to be a member here at all, but if you are a follower of Christ, we welcome you. Uh, Communion is a time when uh, we focus on what God has done for us, his uh, provision that Jesus died for us. Um, He desires that we examine ourselves before we share in this time. And it's sort of like God had this plan that for the church just to make sure if you've forgotten to, to make a check-in with God, when you come to church, he's going to call you to check in with him about your life. The Bible says we should examine our lives and that if there is sin, we should confess that sin to God, be honest with him. And you can do that privately and silently. But confession isn't just, um, oh yeah, you caught me here, God. Confession is 
uh, needs to lead to repentance, a change. Not just, I'm going to stay here and do the same thing over and over again. I'm going to keep confessing. I'm not even going to try. I'm just going to... Confession needs to learn to lead to a change. And uh, ask God to show you what he wants you to do. And if there's something you need to confess, if there's a change he wants you to make, ask God for help. Ask him to lead you out of this and through it. So when we share communion, we, we take uh, the bread and the cup. And the bread uh, is a symbol. It's a reminder. It's a metaphor for the body of Jesus Christ. His body was given for us. It's about his death. He sacrificed everything. The, the blood, uh, the cup represents the blood. And his blood was shed, and it was the payment, the Bible says, for our sin. His life was infinitely valuable, and it pays for our lives. We're, we're finite. The whole world is finite. But he is infinitely valuable, and he has paid the penalty for our sin. And Jesus just wants us to remember that. And that should humble us, and I hope it moves us toward obedience. Um, I'm going to thank the Lord for the bread and the cup and then whenever you're ready, uh, you can uh, come forward and come to one of our stations. You take the bread and you can take the cup and you can go back to your chair and then you can take um, those whenever you want. We won't, we won't wait. We'll just, when you're ready, you take them. Okay? Let's bow in prayer. <coughs> Gracious God, we uh, just pause before you humbly and we thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ. When we think about who he is, it's amazing, it's overwhelming, it's awesome, it's scary. And for some reason, God, that you loved us, and you gave your son for us, thank you. May we be humble, may we be grateful, may we thank you for your provision, and may we respond uh, in a way that seeks to please you. Thank you now for the bread that represents the body of Jesus Christ. Thank you for the cup that represents the blood of Jesus Christ. Thank you for the gift of our salvation, for the forgiveness of sins, for eternal life, to be born again, to be a child of God, to have the Holy Spirit in our lives, to be a citizen of heaven. Thank you, God. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.